John chapter 2, verse 18. Then Jesus uh, then answered, rather, then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Uh, the things of which he refers, uh, the particular thing is the cleansing of the temple. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know exactly what I mean. Jesus had gone into the temple, driven people out, turned tables over, uh, beaten people on the back. It was, it was the scene of violence, uh, 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 many violence at least. And um, this uh, raises the attention of the Jewish people standing there, and especially the leaders among the Judaizers, and they ask, what in the world gives you the authority to do, that, do this? And so give us a sign to show us um, what's up. So verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Understandably, then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. As you can see, Jesus here foretells his death. He knows precisely how it's going to happen. And even more mysteriously, he foretells his resurrection. That is, he predicts or prophesies that once his body is laid in the tomb, It will only need it for three days, and then there will be this grand thing called resurrection. A dead man will come back to life. His temple, temple, will be destroyed, but his temple will be raised again in three days. Now, this statement is just sitting ripe for misunderstanding. Do you agree? Speak this way, it's put out there, Almost as if Jesus hoped somebody would misunderstand. I'm not quite going to go there, but you get the feeling of that, don't you? Destroy this temple, and here's why I say that. Jesus is standing in the temple when he says it. He is standing in the temple of Herod, called Herod's temple uh, back in the time. It was a remake of the original Solomon's temple built on the site. And as you can see, it had been 46 years under construction. Uh, People didn't do things quickly back then. You didn't uh, throw up an entire subdivision in a summer, in a summer's, you know, the the space of a summer. Uh, Forty-six years they've been building this building, and honestly, according to history, it would be about another 30 years before the temple would even be completed, so it's not even in completion at this point. Uh, Ironically, the temple would be completed just a very short time before uh, uh, enemy uh, uh, armies would come in and destroy the temple. So there was very little use of the temple when it was completed. Here we are, 46 years in, the temple's not even done yet, and here's Jesus standing here talking about destruction of a temple. Well, since he's located where he is, it's perfectly understandable that they would misunderstand and suppose him to be talking about leading some sort of invasion that would destroy the brick-and-mortar temple that was there on the mount in Jerusalem. But the particularly mysterious part of this is not just that an itinerant preacher would stand up and say, we're going to tear down the temple, but that he would come back and say, and we're going to rebuild it. Why would you tear something down only to rebuild it? 
Seems odd, doesn't it? All right, tear that down, I'll build it right back. And even more perplexing, I will build it back in just three days. I will build it back in three days. It's been 46 years, they say. How could you build something in three days? Obviously, Jesus is putting some things out there that, des- that are designed to make people think. And yet, of course, that seems to be in short supply then and now, that is thinking. Um, so, we get a human level response to this, but Jesus has many more things in mind than just a physical temple, whether it stands or falls. There's a whole realm of seeing, a whole dimension of things to be seen and known and understood, of which Jesus has reference, and these people can't even begin to perceive. Now, nothing's changed. There is tonight a whole realm of seeing, a whole dimension of experience to be encountered by individuals who live and breathe and shop at Kroger here on earth that most people never get. They never see it. They never breathe that air. They never experience those things. Jesus will explain how this works in the third chapter of John in a conversation with Nicodemus when he says, uh, the person who is born again, only the person who is born of the Spirit, can see the kingdom of God. It's a wonderfully mysterious statement by our Lord saying that there, is, uh, there are visions to be seen Experiences to be had only available to those who have been born a second time, born into the kingdom, born of the Spirit. So if you haven't been, it's uh, difficult to enter into a text like this one. If you have, you'll be able to crawl into the edges of it, just the edges. I don't think you're going to have much success getting into the full depths of this statement. Like I said, I feel almost utterly ignorant when it comes to a statement like this one. Destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it again. Have you ever seen that happen? I didn't think so. I've never seen it happen. What I've seen in this world, and I've been living in it for 58 years now, and what I've seen in this world is um, decay and death. I've seen this trend. It's a pretty frightening one of decay and death. It's a downward trend. I I don't like this trend. It's an unhappy one. Everywhere I go, it seems like people are getting older. I look in the mirror and think, what in the world is that? It's like, <laughs> it's curious. I'm like the oldest faculty member at my school. It's like, what? how did that happen? I was the new guy. And suddenly, suddenly it changes. Uh, decay and death is the trend of the day. Young people, it soon will happen to you as well. You hear some of these people, your parents saying, you know, I can't play basketball like I, I, I used to. Um, it's not long until suddenly you realize those are not just things people say. They're things that are felt. We've been watching this decay and death thing for a long time. I was a kid. I was trying to figure this out. And I remember my cousins and I were sitting around. And I remember saying, I don't know why this was, but every time we went to the funeral home, it, um, well, you'll see. I remember looking at my cousin and I saying, have you noticed that every time you go to the funeral home, it's a guy that died? (laughs) I don't know why it was, but every funeral I'd been to were men. I just seemed like, man, and I... I'm a guy. I guess it's going to happen to me too. <laughs> Somehow, even as a little kid trying to figure it out, it's like this, there's something about this death thing that's very deeply disturbing. Well, yes, it's supposed to be. It's a curse. Death wasn't supposed to be here. It is a curse. 
But here we see Jesus has something else in mind. He's looking into this thing, this thing called death, this decay and death, this downward trend kind of thing. And he's pointing to the fact that there's actually a big reversal coming. That somewhere along the line, something is going to change in such a radical way that the trend that has been unstoppable despite medical advances and technology is going to be stopped. And not just stopped, but turned around. So things that are in decay are going to be blossoming again. And things that are dead are going to be alive again. And it's going to start one day when somebody destroys the temple of the body of Jesus and he raises it again in three days. That's where it starts. Okay, now, so let's jump in. <laughs> we have here a bit of a parable, honestly. Jesus speaks parabolically. It's, it's a language, it's, a, it's metaphorical kind of language. So I'm going to call it a parable, even though it's not the typical kind of parable. I'll use parable and promise and, and um, principle to kind of be the heads by which we look at this. And I promise to, I'll shut down if the storm starts really bad. How's that? <laughs> um, Let's think about it for a minute. The parable. All right, destroy the temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. This is what uh, some scholars call a mashal, M-A-S-H-A-L. These are, these are those, um, these are these um, very mysterious sayings of our Lord. He puts several of them out there. These are deep, veiled, that is covered, kinds of sayings. Sayings that it takes some special insight to be able to get. He throws them out there, and I love the way he does it. A, a, a similar way, or actually an example of, would be the parables of our Lord, the actual ones we think of, the classic parables, parable of the sower or some of these others. And his disciples one time came to him and said, why do you do that, Jesus? It's a great question. I understand why they would ask. I thought we were starting a great movement here. Don't we want people to understand? It would be wonderful if they could understand. And so um, Jesus um, looks at them and he says this. This is, this is recorded for us in Matthew 13. Jesus says, I, I'm going to paraphrase, but he says this. He says, I am speaking in parables so that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not hear. It's just a remarkable statement that Jesus looks at, people, looks at his disciples and says, some people I want to understand this fully and some people I'm just fine if they don't. Now, that offends our 21st century sensibilities, doesn't it? That's, it's like, no, 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 that's not, that's not equitable. Well, Jesus is only showing us here, it's, just, it's, a, it's a kind of an oblique way to get at it, but Jesus is only showing us here that he has a right to choose a bride just like you do. Gentlemen, I should say. Jesus has a right to choose his bride just like you do. It always shocks me when people start worrying about this free will thing, and, 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 and the more they emphasize the will of man the more it compromises the will of God. And I, I'm constantly looking at students and saying, now please, please understand that I understand what you're saying and I get it. I want man to be free too. Absolutely I do. But understand that um, the more freedom you give to man, the less you give to God. Are you willing for God to be free? Is it okay for God to have free will? Well, the point is here in this instance, Jesus is simply showing us that there are ways in which he will demonstrate his sovereignty even in who gets the truth and who doesn't. So, Jesus Christ speaks this way so that the gospel may be hidden from some and revealed to others. So tonight, friends, if you actually are among those favored few or favored ones, there are a great many across the course of history 
It's hard to tell how many there are in the current moment. But that favored number, if you are among that favored number who actually see into these mysteries and they intrigue you and they draw you and you rejoice in them and you find them to be fetching, you have been graced of God. You have, have been a recipient of the grace of God. So Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. So there's massive misunderstanding because most people around him apparently have not experienced this miracle of spiritual birth. So the inquisitors assume that Jesus is speaking about this great big building, this large building that Herod's temple has been here in construction for all these years. They are bound by something we're bound by in our time. That is a materialist interpretation of everything. They are bound by a materialist interpretation of everything. They hear Jesus' sayings, and they think, stuff. Uh, if you're too young to know what materialist is, it's where everything, everything is, is understood as having to do with, with stuff. So you're an important person if you have a lot of toys. You're not an important person if you don't have a lot of toys. And by the way... Adults have toys too, you do understand, right? Grown-ups have big, big, expensive toys too. Uh, Everything gets wild. In our time, I feel like we're under this kind of spell of, of, of a materialist interpretation of reality. Now, please understand, God is not against material. He made it. God is not against physical stuff. Stuff matters to God. I'll tell you one of the biggest mysteries I had in my head as a kid The way I understood the gospel, and I think it was the way it was preached, it may have just been my misunderstanding, I heard people preaching in such a way as to suggest that everything material was evil. Like, I can't wait until I die and can just throw off this flesh. I'll be so glad to be rid of this flesh. This robe of flesh, I'll drop and rise, and they seem to be celebrating this. And it seemed odd to me, it's like, okay, you want to get rid of everything physical. But then they turn around and preach about the resurrection of the body. It's like, wait a minute, this is really confusing me. I thought, it was, I thought the stuff that we were getting rid of in death was the, we wanted to get rid of it for forever. And the Lord, and then, but the Lord's Word says that He actually is going to resurrect. He is going to restore, in fact. Um, all of creation is, is waiting to that day when there will be this wonderful liberty of the sons of God experienced by creation itself. Well, you'd read that stuff and hear it, and it's like, wait, how do these get together? Well, it gets together this way. God is not against stuff. He's against the sin that's messed the stuff up. That's what He's against. He's against the sin that's messed up the stuff. Well, here these people are only thinking material. They're only thinking about uh, what costs a lot of money to build. And so the, we, the physical, the material um, has taken over their, their life, so to speak, uh, much like it has ours. Um, when this happens, of course, it diminishes our humanity. We find ourselves in this poverty-stricken place where we are today. I'll tell you what. The other day, uh, here's an example. When we were at camp, we had one of those moments uh, on, I guess it was Friday afternoon during our, our adult Bible study. And uh, just the, I, those of us who were there, some of you were there, you felt the sense that you had touched the hem of the garment of God. That's just the best way I can think I would put it. It's like we touched the hem of the garment for a minute. We have been in Jesus' presence here. This has been extraordinary. And when it was done, we uh, all got up off our knees, and um, Isaac and I happened to be at the same spot at the same time, which was sweet. And, and Isaac says, 
something like, I'll mess it up, but it was something like, why do we get excited about stuff like Apple Watches? <laughs> why, why, why is it that we get excited about these things that are here today and gone tomorrow? Apple Watches will be so last week, very soon. But touching the hem of the garment of Jesus, that's, that's going to last into eternity, folks. It's never going to die. Well, a materialist obsession, you see, thinks the Apple Watch is to be desired above touching Jesus' garment. These people were all bound up by that, as is our generation. So these folks misunderstood what Jesus had to say. They did not stop to consider this deeper intent of our Lord. But apparently what they did was they rushed to start a rumor. They spread a rumor. And uh, young uh, kids, this is the way it works. A rumor, somebody hears a little something, a piece of a little something, and then they start speculating. And they they share what they think the story is. And the next stage, and the next stage, and the next stage. And have you ever played that game of telephone? Is that what it's called? You ever played that game, how it works? You start, we did this in first grade. We start around the circle and whisper one word in the ear and work it around ear to ear, uh, mouth to ear, mouth to ear, mouth to ear, all the way around the circle. And at the end, it's laughable what you come back with, right? Not even remotely kin to the first word that was spoken. The rumor starts. Well, what starts is this. These people hear Jesus say, destroy this body and in three days I'll raise it again. And um, what they hear is, I'm sorry, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. What they hear is, what they hear is, Jesus is going to lead a rebellion that will destroy the temple. And he thinks he's got the talent to build it back in three days. That's the rumor that got going. The reason I know that is three years later, I may not have the chronology perfect, but take it, three, de- three years later, people are still talking about this statement. Do you know this is actually the statement that's brought up as to convict and execute Jesus? It's the very statement. This is the fellow that said, destroy the temple and I'll raise it in three days. And there's no other statement Jesus made in His entire ministry that's quoted more while Jesus is on the cross than this one. It really got people's attention. So here they are, immediately feeding this statement into the rumor mill. Doesn't it remind you of today's press, the media today? You grab a snippet and you feed it into the mill and just watch what happens. Destruction everywhere. So this happens, of course, with our Lord. And it's a total, it's a total misunderstanding. False interpretations blazed abroad and they're still lingering in the public mind three years after Jesus has been doing His ministry. Now, the, under, uh, the understanding that occurs in the text is from the disciples, but the disciples don't understand until after it's all said and done. Well, that's the way it is with us so much of the time. Now, there, you see, is the, is the parable, the parable misunderstood. The promise of it, here's our, the, the core of our message, and, and, and then a few practical things, and we're done. The promise destroy this temple and I will raise it again. That's what that, it it is a promise. Do you understand the language? Destroy this and it will be raised again. It's a promise. And it echoes a promise from long ago. Genesis 3.15, for example, if you know what I'm talking about. Well, destroy this temple. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to destroy a temple. He just said, destroy this temple. And destroy they did. We sang about it tonight. I barely could make it through. I suspect some of the rest of you couldn't make it through either. Precious Lamb of God will be crushed. 
He will be bruised. He will be destroyed. He will be destroyed according to two dynamics at work. Two dynamics at work. And um, where we are all in uh, you know, better shape, these two dynamics would be some wonderful preaching right here. And they are this. He will be destroyed according to dynamic number one, the worst that men can produce. He will, the worst that men can do. Man at his worst will be the first dynamic. The second dynamic will be God at his best. And you must take both of these together, brothers and sisters. For this to work, both have to come together. It is man at his worst, and it is God at his best. Here we have the ultimate. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This is the absolute apex of that statement. Yeah, God, God meant it for good, but they meant it for evil. So watch how this works. Destroy they did. Here's the heart of the Christian gospel, brothers and sisters. Celebrated by Christians all over the world. The thousands and thousands and millions across the world who this very day have celebrated that Sunday morning, that, that, that the Lord's day is the day we celebrate Christ coming back from the dead. If you were to turn to John 19, which we want for time's sake, you would see something of that destruction. It does, does us well from time to time to take a look. What does this destruction look like? Jesus scourged, crowned with thorns, mocked, by purple, you know, placing a purple robe upon him, struck by the hand, forced to carry his own cross, crucified, nails piercing his hands and feet, crucified in um, disgrace between two thieves. So there's that. Stripped, left unclothed on the cross, pierced with a sword in the side, buried in a garden tomb, borrowed, not even his own place, buried in a garden tomb. And then Matthew will add that he was spit upon and he was given vinegar for his thirst. Brothers and sisters, destroy, they did. Destroy this temple. All over the gospel we see then the horrific nature of the death of the Son of God. Here is that ultimate, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Why would we say that? Brian this morning mentioned Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Didn't please me to even talk about it just now. I don't like going through that. It's too graphic. And I actually, I, I bowdlerized it. Um, what do you call that? I, I, I filtered it. I cleaned it up a little bit. I didn't give you the full 100 proof, okay? This was, this was cleaned up a little bit. It's probably appropriate in mixed company. But you turn to the Scriptures, and the picture is so grisly, so gruesome, and yet God is pleased. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, he says. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, such that the pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand. Through the bruising of the Son of God, the pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand. But look at the collision, my brothers and sisters. Here we have Jesus Christ on the cross crying out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. This, these words which describe the, the abandonment of the Son of God on the cross. That Fellowship that had been in existence from all eternity past in the Holy Trinity. The highest order of love and delight and joy in the Holy Trinity that had been there from eternity. Now broken for a moment as Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Talk about destruction. So the betrayal of Judas, the big stuff, we talk about it. The denial of Peter, it's big stuff. We think about it. That's nothing compared to the loss of the Father at the cross. Here is Jesus Christ then, betrayed, denied, abandoned. 
But all of it, we find in Acts chapter 4, was this massive conspiracy. Not by men. You saw the conspiracy of people. I, I, I get a crack up out of conspiracy theory. Just, I, They're all fun. And as somebody said recently, I don't have any conspiracies left, uh, theories left because they all came true. <laughs> something, something to that. But the fact is human beings are, are I have concluded that human beings are too, too foolish, too weak, too frail to actually conspire in quite the way that some people think. I do know the devil is smart enough, okay? I do know the devil is smart enough, so I get it. I get it. But the conspiracy I'm talking about is not a conspiracy by man or even a conspiracy of the devil. It's a conspiracy of God. These people were there to do, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel had determined before to be done. Jesus Christ would die exactly according to plan. There is no mistake here. It seems like God is losing control, but God is in control the whole time. It seems like the powers of heaven have weakened drastically, but it's exactly the opposite. The curse of death... The curse of death that has been here since Genesis 2.17 has now taken hold of the Godhead Himself. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and now death is taking hold, as it were, its tendrils, its fingers digging deep into the very soul of the Godhead. I can almost hear those words in Genesis 2 whenever the Lord says to Adam, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. You hear those words? Imagine those words in heaven. Imagine those words in eternity past. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, hear those words as God speaks them to Adam. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And it must be that Christ, who knew all things, even at that moment, knew, Adam, in the day that you eat of it, I must surely die. Here then is Christ willing to die for His bride. They will destroy, but die He must. He will lay down His life. It won't be taken from Him. He will lay down His life for His bride. He enters into the holy place, as we know. Oh, there's so much preaching here. He enters into the holy place uh, to offer Himself. He's the priest who offers, and yet He's the sacrifice offered. The priest offers the priest. Uh, the sacrificer offers the sacrifice which is himself unto God, the perfect sacrifice to take away the sin of his people, so that through death he would deliver them uh, who all their lifetime were subject to, to uh, uh, bondage because of the fear of death. I messed that up just a little bit. But that he would deliver them from this great oppressor, death itself. They destroyed, but he, of course, gave up his life. But he will raise it again. And this, my friends, is why Christian churches have never run out. It's, never, it's why churches have never closed. Oh, individual churches have closed here and there. But uh, we're going to talk, well, maybe we'll get there. We don't ask me about it afterward. But, but, but individual churches closed. But the fact is, the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has marched right on through all these ages. Across uh, time and history and culture and everything else. Continued to pop up everywhere. And opposition to it has only strengthened it. Well, Why? Well, because this is the, we're in the service of the one who can't be killed for long. <laughs> we're, in, we're in the service of the one who, whenever he dies, can't stay dead. We're, we're, in, we're actually not just in the service of, he inhabits us. The one who couldn't stay dead, the one who went into a grave, borrowed it, but only for a short time, is the one who says, I will be with you even unto the end of the age. 
Now, destroy they did, but rise up he did. Here is the heart of the Christian gospel. Up from the grave he arose. And um, you know the story. All of human history was changed in an instant on that first, first day of the week. That first, I like to call it the first, first day of the week. The eighth day, really, is what we have. The eighth day. The first, first day of the week. Death was conquered. I used to really wrestle with that one, too. Like you see that verse in 2 Timothy that says that he has abolished death and uh, you know, brought life and immortality to light. How do you abolish death? How do you kill death? Every instance of an attempt to kill death only makes death happen again, right? It only furthers death. It doesn't get rid of it. Killing doesn't eliminate death. It adds to the number of ones that are victims of death. How do you get rid of death? Jesus Christ actually kills death. He puts death to death. In fact, you could say that the grave was sent to its own permanent grave. I love it. Death was conquered. Death remanded to its own grave. Sin was conquered. Why? Sin was the problem anyway. So sin is conquered. He became sin. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Absorbed the sin. Sucked out the sin of this nasty world into himself. There gives up his life as he becomes sin. Watch. You can see how this works. The, the math is not hard. I think. I mean, I'm speaking as a, as a child. I don't think the math is hard to work out. You want to... You want to get rid of the sin in the world. Son of God who's perfect comes into the world and absorbs the sin of all of His people into Himself and becomes sin. And then there is crushed to death by His heavenly Father, placed in a grave. What does He carry there? All those crushed sins. Buries them deep in the heart of the earth so they never come out again. He comes out, but not them. Your sins, my friends, have been put in the heart of the earth if you're a believer in Christ tonight. They're there never to come back against you. The remains of your sins, I should say. The dead remains of your sin placed in the heart of the earth never to come out again. He rises up again, but He doesn't raise the sin with Him. Isn't that glorious? (laughs) He, He comes back Himself, but the sin doesn't. Jesus bore all that agony then for you, believer. This first, first day of the week. Now I'm going I'm to get... So this first, first day of the week, it's like a new world starting over. Okay, There was a first, first day, Genesis 1. Now there's another one. A first, first day. And it might even be the beginnings of a kind of new world. It is definitely the beginning of a new way of being human. Let me try to show you what I mean. I'm going to make some statements now that seem like they're just... Um, um, Oh boy. Um, They seem like they're too utopian to be real. Do you know what I mean? These statements I'm getting ready to make seem so good they can't possibly be true. So so you ready? Got your seatbelt buckled? Let's go. Uh, In this righteous new world that started with that first, first day, in this righteous new world, sin's cancer. That's sin is like cancer. Sin's cancer is dried up and sucked away into a bottomless pit. Boom. Okay? You struggle with sin? Anybody have trouble with sin? All right, Jesus Christ, in this righteous new world, sin's cancer sucked away like this gigantic vacuum cleaner, just sucking it all away, and it's gone. In this righteous new world, the grave 
and its cold confines are transformed into a door of hope. The horror of staring into a grave and imagining being put there. Well, that horror is taken away for the Christian. Instead of standing there in abject horror at the spoils of death as one, Christians stand over graves, and yes, they weep, but they weep not as others who have no hope. And they sing songs of hope and joy and delight. They rejoice. They think about the great reunion that's going on on the other side. For the grave has been transformed in this righteous new world into a doorway of hope. In this righteous new world, death itself has died. For it is said, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Death is vanquished. In this righteous new world, we cower not at sin's deadly influences swirling around us today. We dread not the cold confines of the grave. We laugh. We point the mocking finger sometimes even at death. See what I said? This is what I meant? This is like, that sounds too idealistic, Brother Thomas. You're, you're really just trying to pretend like you're a poet or something, right? No, every bit of this can be substantiated from Scripture, you see. Every bit of it. Just as death um, and destruction wagged its ugly head at Christ, so now we turn around because He he was destroyed but rose again. Now we turn around and wag the finger in, in death's face. We can sing, I view the monster death and smile, for he has lost his sting. Satan trembles all the while. Why? Because his kingdom has been toppled. Destroy this body and I will raise it again in three days. This is the beginning of a new life. A new world, so to speak. A new humanity in a way of thinking. Destroy this temple I will raise it again. I'm going to skip a section. If you want to know about it, come talk to me. Because there is in John 20 a wonderful um, cameo of this. You know that in the beginning of time... God started things out in a garden, right? Adam and Eve in a garden. And you and now in John chapter 20, 11 through 16, if you want to look it up, Mary Magdalene is standing in a garden. Now this, this is a different kind of garden. This is not a garden brimming with life like Eden was. This is a garden festering in death. It's a cemetery. It's a graveyard. Mary stands in another garden now, like Eve stood in a garden so long ago. And and Mary is weeping in this garden as she looks for her Lord. In the original garden, all those living things after the fall would die. In this new garden Mary is standing in, everything is dead, but all things dead will come alive. Here stands another woman. Not perfect like Eve was. Eve was perfect but liable to fall. She was capable of falling. Here stands Mary Magdalene, loved of our, of our Lord. A precious vessel our Lord had saved. Here stands Mary Magdalene, showing her enormous love for Christ. Weeping. And she hears a voice. Eve heard a voice in the Garden of Eden. Mary hears a voice in the garden, at the Garden Tomb. She hears not the voice of the serpent... She hears the voice of her Savior. 
If you've looked at the story, you know that somewhere standing behind her was Jesus Christ in resurrected form, though unrecognizable apparently at the moment, for she thought he was the gardener. She misidentified him. Eve misidentified the serpent in a little bit of a way, didn't she? But here uh, Mary misidentifies Jesus. He must be the gardener. Well, yes, he's the best gardener there's ever been. And um, she hears not the voice of the serpent, but the voice of her, ser- of her Savior. And rather than yield to the voice of a serpent or serpent-like deception, she yields to the voice of her Savior. For Christ turns to her and says, Mary, just her name, that's all it took. Mary. Isn't that something? Mary. And whenever he said that word, Mary Magdalene turned and said, Rabboni, Master. And everything changed for her. What is God doing here? He's starting the world over again. Do you see that? It's a new woman who has been deceived in a way, but her deception is reversed. And she follows not the serpent, but the Savior. Leading us, you see, and all of Christendom, faithful Christendom, down through the ages in this great train of belief and trust in the Savior as over against the serpent. God is starting the world over again. And here we, here we have this... So destroy this temple, and I will raise it again. What is Jesus saying? Look, when I raise, it's not just going to be me. <laughs> it's not just Jesus' little body coming out of the grave. There's a whole new thing getting started here. And you and I who believe in Christ have been a part of that do-over ever since. This new creation. Um, a creation not ex nihilo this time. and A creation that is out of nothing. But a creation ex vetera. Uh, a creation out of the old stuff. That has been now saved. Cleansed and purified and purged by the Christ. Who was destroyed but who rose again. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. There's the promise, you see, of Genesis 3.15 fulfilled. And you and I get to live in this new world now, this new life, this new humanity. Don't live like, don't live like a bunch of fools. You're called to so much better than that, you see. So finally, the principle. Our principles. There are a bunch of them, I'm sure, but let me give you two. The principle. So we have the parable, the promise, the principle. The principle is really simple. In fact, it's so simple it's going to insult your intelligence. Here's the first one. Before there could be a resurrection, there has to be a death. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) Brother Thomas, we came out here all through the storm to hear that. Of course that's true. Before there can be a resurrection, there has to be a death. But you know that we really don't understand that very well these days? As in, most people don't understand first the cross, then the crown. That sequence... We want, the, we want the diploma without the study. Um, I work in education, that's, yeah. We want the money without the work. We want the esteem or the respect without having earned it. We want crowns without having to suffer the crosses. We want resurrection without having to suffer death. Jesus says it doesn't work that way. Matter of fact, he says if you, you and you and you and you and you, If you would be a follower of Jesus Christ, 
You must deny yourself. You must take up a cross. Now, his cross. What is that? A place to die. Take up a cross and die to yourself. But you see, in losing your life, Jesus says, it's not net loss. You will find your life. Do you, do you want to know how to be truly grounded? How to be truly at peace? Do you want to know how that all of those things can be brought? Well, I know I, we're not perfected yet, so we still have all of our stuff. But, but I'm telling you that there is a foundational grounding peace that happens in the life of a child of God that nothing shakes. Nothing. You want to know how? Lose your life for His sake and you will find it. Give up yourself and He will give you yourself back. Cleaned up, polished up, brushed off, strengthened up with a great big smile. (laughs) Okay. There has to be a resurrection. There has to be a death if there's a resurrection. But the second principle, as surely as there is destruction and death of that which is good, resurrection will follow. So brothers and sisters, Please take heart. Our nation, which is destroying right now, it's self-destructing. If there's something good here, it will be raised again because God is that kind of God. Your family might be going through all kinds of challenges, but if it is looking to God, the fact is, God has promised. Just like Jesus went to the grave, He came out. We're following in that train. We're keeping the pattern up, you see. Churches that die. God, the truth is not going to die. goes down here, comes up somewhere else. Or as in the case where it seems that the Lord is doing there at home, it went down in one spot and it's coming back in the same spot. Praise God. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. We symbolize this and sort of reenact it when we're baptized. So one of the wonderful ways that we can symbolize it is by the act of baptism. May the Lord help us to follow Him if we haven't and if we have to live that pattern Keep up the pattern. Destroy this body. In three days, I will raise it again. Let's pray. Mighty God, now we ask that You would work these things into our souls and help us, Lord, even though we're just saturated with the truth this week that we've enjoyed and are thankful for. Lord, I pray that these snippets of truth and this little bit of scratching the surface would itself be ministering to our souls in deep ways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.